I'm happy to be introducing my colleague, Robert Wright. Bob Wright is a Schwartz Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation and the author of The Evolution of God. He is also the author of Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny, a New York Times book review, notable book for 2000, and The Moral Animal, Evolutionary Psychology and Everyday Life, which was named one of the 12 best books of 1994 by the New York Times Book Review. Mr. Wright co-founded Blogging Heads TV, and he is also a contributing editor at The New Republic, Time Magazine, and Slate, as well as a contributor to The Atlantic Monthly and The New Yorker. Please join me in welcoming Bob Wright. Well, thank you, Gregory, uh, for that nice introduction. Um, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, and thank you, Gregory, also for having the uh, foresight to schedule this on a night when the Lakers are not playing. Um, I'm glad it wasn't, glad it wasn't last night. Um, so um, here's the book. Uh, my publishers and I had a little disagreement over whose name should be bigger, mine or God's. Um, and you can, you can see what their view on the question was. Um, the, uh, as, the, as the title suggests, it's, it's about God. Um, it actually starts out uh, being about gods. The, the narrative begins um, back when the world was populated by hunter-gatherer societies, um, all of which uh, seem to have believed in more than one god. Um, and then I, uh, the story, as the story unfolds, I move toward the emergence of monotheism, um, in the Middle East, and most of the story is, is actually about the Abrahamic God that, that emerges there, the God of Christians and Jews and Muslims. Um, and in telling the story of the Abrahamic God, I, I, I try to present a, 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 you know, a kind of a multidimensional uh, uh, characterization. I like to think it's, it's, a, it's a 3D biography of, of God, um, but there is one dimension in particular uh, that I'm going to talk about tonight, and that is probably closest to my motivation for writing the book. Um, and that is uh, looking at what you could call the changing moods of God. And you see this in the scriptures of all three uh, Abrahamic faiths. And, um, you know, basically sometimes God seems like really nice and compassionate, and sometimes uh, he doesn't. Uh, to take an example from the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians call the Old Testament, um, at one moment, he's saying uh, that the Israelites should annihilate uh, nearby peoples who worship uh, the wrong gods, which is to say not him. Um, and he's unequivocal. He says, leave nothing breathing at all, not, not even livestock, uh, <clears throat> much less women and children. Um, but at other times, uh, you see the Israelites uh, not only uh, embracing peaceful coexistence with a neighbor, that worships a different god, but actually invoking that god to validate the peaceful coexistence. So they say to a neighboring people, look, you've got your god, Chemosh, he gave you your land, our god, Yahweh, gave us our land, you know, can't we get along? So uh, a question I was interested in was, what accounts for these changing moods that you see in all three traditions? Uh, to put the question in concrete terms, it's, um, what circumstances on the ground uh, at the time the scriptures were written might account uh, for, for, the, for the, the vacillating tone between belligerence and tolerance? What circumstances bring out the worst in a religion and what circumstances bring out the best? Um, 
And the hope was that maybe uh, if we understood what brought out the best and the worst in the ancient world, it might tell us something about what circumstances uh, bring out the best and the worst um, in religion today. Um, and I will, I will elaborate on what I think those circumstances are, but first I want to emphasize that I do think it's the circumstances that matter. I don't buy into the idea that any religion is eternally and intrinsically anything, you know, good or bad. I, 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 the question, you know, is Islam a religion of peace or is any other religion a religion of peace, I just don't think is the right question because all religions have shown that sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. Um, so uh, when I look at the, the kind of so-called religious conflicts in the world, my my view is that they're really not about religion fundamentally. They tend to be about underlying political and economic issues, even if the people in the conflicts, you know, invoke theology or whatever to justify killing. I think the, the root cause tends to be kind of facts on the ground. Now, it may seem ironic to write a long book about religion whose point is that religion doesn't matter, um, and it's probably suboptimal from a marketing point of view as well. Um, so I want to stress, I do think uh, religion matters. First of all, even if the character of a religion at a given point in time uh, is a function of kind of facts on the ground, you know, it, it acquires some momentum. It's not like you're going to change the facts on the ground to be more conducive to tolerance in a religion and overnight things are going to change. Um, and there is a period of adaptation that has to happen for the religion to kind of change moods. And the adaptation uh, has to build on existing doctrines and traditions and views. And so there's real intellectual work to be done. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's important uh, to, to study the religions and to know what their content is at any point in time and, and, and to read their scriptures. The scriptures do matter. It is the resource people have to draw on. But I don't think the scriptures matter as much as some other, uh, some other things. And so after 9-11, when, you know, people went out and bought the Quran in very large numbers to try to understand what had happened in 9-11, I don't think that's irrelevant. Um, but I do think that, you know, what you'll find in the Quran is what you'll find in other scriptures. There are good verses and bad verses, and the big question to me is what, what, inclines a person to focus on one rather than the other. And if you want to understand that in the case of 9-11, I would say you're probably better off reading books about the history of the 20th century uh, and various, you know, cultural histories of, of uh, parts of the Islamic world, books about American foreign policy and so on. So that's kind of the, um, the premise is that, uh, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm what you would call a materialist in, you know, not, not in the sense, um, I hope of being greedy, but in the sense of, you know, kind of the Marxist sense of thinking that, that, that m the material circumstances of life are very influential in shaping um, ideas. Okay, so um, as for what does make uh, people choose to focus on the good or the bad uh, of a religion, um, I do have a, a, a basic kind of theory about that. Um, I, uh, I guess any, any book with a title as grandiose as the evolution of God should purport to derive at least one fundamental law of the universe. Um, and in my case, I called it the law of religious tolerance um, and kind of, you know, dressed it up in, in fancy game theoretical uh, uh, terminology that I'll, that I'll kind of run you through. But, but I think you'll find out that it's a pretty commonsensical idea. Um, 
to explain it, I first have to say a little bit about game theory in case some of you aren't, uh, aren't, aren't up on the basic distinction between a zero-sum and a non-zero-sum game. Um, a zero-sum game is the kind you're, you're familiar with, well, say, the Lakers and, you know, the Orlando Magic, for example, where everything is, is, is good for one player and bad for the other. Okay, so uh, every point scored is, you know, if the Magic scores, it's bad for the Lakers. Uh, if the Lakers uh, scored, it, it's bad for the Magic. So there's an exactly inverse correlation in fortunes. That's what's characteristic of a zero-sum game. Um, on the other hand, uh, the relationship among the, the teammates is a highly non-zero-sum game because if, if they define their goal as to win, then every time their team scores a point, it's good for everyone on the team, and every time the other team scores a point, it's bad for, for, for them. So there's, a, there's an exactly positive correlation of for, fortunes within a team, so that's an extreme non-zero-sum relationship. Um, in real life, standard examples of uh, non-zero-sum games come from, for example, economics, so that when you uh, buy merchandise, uh, you'd rather have the merchandise than the money you part with. The merchant would rather have the money. You both go away happy. So uh, that's, that's uh, technically a non-zero-sum game. And what I uh, argue in the book is that when a group of people, say a, relig a religious group, uh, sees itself as being in a non-zero-sum relationship with another group, that is, it can gain through peaceful collaboration or peaceful coexistence, um, it is much more likely to find tolerance in its heart. Um, whereas when it sees its fortunes as inversely correlated with another group, so that in order for it to come out ahead, the other group has to do badly, uh, or to put a, a finer point on it, if it sees the other group as a threat to its interests, um, you're much more likely to see belligerence. Okay? And I hope this kind of sounds like common sense, because I think it grows out of just a basic part of human psychology that is, should be apparent to us on introspection, okay? So, um, you know, if you have a rival for a job or a mate or something, I think you will probably appraise them pretty critically, right? You will kind of look for things uh, to, to, to dislike about them, look for unflattering things that you can say about them about, and it could be about their clothes or taste in music, you know, whatever part of their worldview, including their religion, comes to your attention, your first instinct is, is to look for something um, to not like about it. I hope, I hope this, this, this kind of rings a bell with some of you. It may, it may just be me, and, and I, I, uh, I'd like to think that the average person is at least as bad as I am, but uh, anyway, I, I, think, I, I think not only is that the case, but I think it's the case that that's a designed-in part of the human mind that is designed by natural selection. Um, and the flip side of that is that when you face a non-zero-sum situation, you know, you face possible fruitful collaboration, say you, you run into somebody, it looks like you, you, you meet them, it looks like you can do a business deal that's going to be good for you, I think you're going to look for things about them to like. Whatever, they, whatever comes out of their mouth about their music or their, their religion, whatever, your first instinct is going to be to frame it positively. Um, and I think that, too, is, is uh, a function of, of kind of the designed human mind. It's designed by natural selection. Um, so it's, it's not, you know, I don't think it's a really exotic claim I'm making about human psychology, but what I am saying is that this kind of basic, recognizable feature of the human mind is the engine of these huge eruptions of religious belligerence, 
or these phases of religious tolerance. I think you can, you can trace them to this one mechanism in the mind as it plays out in different circumstances, okay? Um, and I think it's, it, it, has, it has shaped this dynamic, the, 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 the kind of fluctuation between zero-sum and non-zero-sum circumstances, or strictly speaking, it's the perception of the zero-sum and non-zero-sum circumstances. Do they see themselves as threatened? Do they see the possibility of fruitful collaboration? But anyway, I think that, that has shaped a lot of the history um, in all three Abrahamic faiths, and I could talk about any of them, and I do in the book. Uh, so in, in the case of Christianity, I talk about how the doctrine of uh, universal love uh, emerged fundamentally as a function of non-zero-sum dynamics. I think it actually emerged later than Jesus. I actually think uh, some of the more laudable uh, things attributed to Jesus, he probably didn't say, and they actually, they actually uh, uh, emerged later in the, in, the, uh, in the Roman Empire in a cosmopolitan environment. Um, similarly, with Islam, uh, I think this, is, this zero-sum, non-zero-sum thing is really a clarifying lens through which to look at the life, the career of, of Muhammad. Um, I, I, I think the story just falls kind of right into, right into place. Um, but tonight, I'm going to focus on the Hebrew Bible and, and, and tell a story from the Hebrew Bible uh, in these terms, uh, it, through the prism of kind of zero-sum and, uh, and non-zero-sum games, and hope that the story looks clearer as a result. And the story is the emergence of monotheism um, in ancient Israel, which I think happens a lot later than many people do, certainly later than the standard story would have it. The standard story is that Moses brings monotheism out of, out of Egypt sometime in, you know, I don't know, late second millennium BCE. Um, the, uh, I think there are a whole, a whole lot of scholars who think that's not the case. Um, I think the, uh, the arrival of, of monotheism is kind of particularly late, uh, along with some other scholars. I think it doesn't come until the exile the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE. And uh, I'm going I'm to I'm explain how I, I think what you see as you move from polytheism to monotheism in Israel is the movement from a non-zero-sum worldview that's very tolerant of other gods and tolerant of foreign gods to a zero-sum uh, worldview that's not, and that leads to monotheism. Um, and I'm going to say some kind of unflattering things about, uh, about God at the, at the time of the emergence of monotheism. But there is a kind of happy ending, because I don't think monotheism is intrinsically belligerent. And after the exile, as I'll explain, I think circumstances are much more conducive to a God that is uh, more broadly compassionate and uh, tolerant. Okay, so polytheism. Uh, you know, as of the 10th century BCE, uh, the Bible itself uh, acknowledges that uh, King Solomon um, is polytheistic. Uh, and he, he's the third king of Israel, so this is very early on. Um, and the Bible's explanation for that is just that, well, he had so many foreign wives that they talked him into buying into all of these foreign gods. Um, and it's true that, I mean, according to the Bible, he had 700 wives, you know, and even by Hollywood standards, that's a lot of wives. Um, so it's possible that just a bunch of wives talked him into this, but I think that's wrong. Um, you know, you have to understand that in ancient times, when a king married uh, a lot of foreign women, they would be from royal families, and the point of it was to consolidate ties 
with other nations, okay? And it's also true that if a king wanted to consolidate ties with those nations, he would show respect to their gods, even to the point of building altars to their gods in, in, uh, in his country, okay? So it's the, the correlation between lots of foreign wives and accepting lots of foreign gods is a natural function of an internationalist foreign policy. Uh, and, and what's another term for an internationalist foreign policy? It's that Solomon saw relations with a lot of countries as non-zero-sum. He thought Israel could benefit with, by having these reciprocal relations with a number of countries. So I don't think it's the wives that led to the gods. I think it's, it's his politics that led to the wives and the gods. And I think that's, this is an example where, where polytheism, the tolerance of and, and respect for a lot of foreign gods, grows out of a non-zero-sum uh, view of the, of, of, of the homes of these gods. Now, in this case, I would say it's probably a matter of very conscious calculation. We're not so much probably talking about the mental mechanism I was describing earlier. We're almost unconsciously, uh, you, you develop, uh, you, you know, tolerance for and, and just kind of a favorable attitude toward various aspects of somebody you want to do a deal with. But still, uh, the correlation is there. So, um, the, uh, so that's the 10th century BCE. Now, if you accept the standard dating mainstream scholarly dating of prophetic texts. And dating texts is a contentious issue, increasingly contentious. But if you accept what is the mainstream view, then the first prophet to insist that Israelites worship only Yahweh is Hosea in the 8th century BCE. Even he is not necessarily monotheistic, okay? because he's not necessarily saying that the other gods don't exist. He's just saying you should only worship Yahweh. The scholarly term for that is monolatry, the insistence on worshiping only one god uh, without denying the existence of other gods. Okay, uh, so that's the 8th century BCE. Um, and, then the, and then the earliest unequivocal prophetic declarations of monotheism come in the part of the book of Isaiah known as Second Isaiah to scholars because... Isaiah has multiple authors, apparently, and this one author is thought to have written during the exile and, and, and is responsible for the later parts of Isaiah. Um, and there's just a, a lot of, it, it's unequivocal monotheism. Um, you know, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one besides me, over and over again. Second Isaiah is monotheistic. That seems to be in the exile. Okay, so if it's true that, that we're talking about non-zero-sum and zero-sum issues, it should be the case that these prophets who are, who are insisting on worshiping Yahweh alone uh, have a dimmer view of relations with other countries than Solomon had. And Hosea, this first uh, monolatrous prophet, uh, certainly seems to. Here are a few quotes from uh, Hosea. He says, Israel, quote, mixes himself with the peoples. Foreigners devour his strength, but he does not know it. Um, and here, uh, apparently, th this was a time of scarcity, and when, when, he, when he says this, quote, the standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no meal. If it were to yield, foreigners would devour it. Um, he seems uh, particularly unhappy uh, with the deals that, that uh, Israelite kings do with the great powers of the day, like Assyria and Egypt. He says, Israel's officials, quote, bargain with the nations, they shall soon writhe under the burden of kings and princes. And it's true that 
that uh, I would say in general, I don't think he's imagining this necessarily. I mean, Israel was a small country in a tough neighborhood. There were a lot of wars. There was a lot of conflict. There were a lot of zero-sum games. And there were these great powers. When it, when it, when it did uh, deals with the great powers, it would be on subordinate terms. So it might be humiliating uh, to Hosea or anyone else. So um, it, it could be that, that, you know, the history has actually changed since Solomon's day and, and that, that, that his perception uh, of a zero-sum environment is, is valid. But in any event, it's, 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 it's very clear. Um, there's a, a, a prophet, okay, so that's 8th century BCE. Now, 7th century BCE, kind of halfway between Hosea and the exile, there's a prophet named Zephaniah, and here you see a very clear correlation, not just a generally zero-sum worldview, but a clear correlation between the nations he sees zero-sum relations with, the nations he sees threatening, and the rejection of their gods, and the punishment that he sees as being inflicted eventually on them by Yahweh. So of the Ammonites, he says, quote, they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Um, and uh, perhaps not co coincidentally, he says that, you know, come the apocalypse, Yahweh will punish those who, quote, bow down and swear to Yahweh, but also swear by Milcom, who is the god of the, the principal god of the Ammonites. And Yahweh will also uh, make the land of the Ammonites a waste forever as well. Um, so there is, there is a, just a very nationalist air in the prophets who seem to be moving Israel toward the worship of only one God. Now, rejecting foreign gods is, is really uh, not enough to get you all the way to monotheism. I mean, if I'm right, and Israel was fundamentally polytheistic for, for, for the first half of the first millennium BCE, then it had a kind of domestic pantheon. Okay, uh, these domestic gods other than Yahweh. And the line between foreign gods and domestic gods is actually a little blurry because in those days gods would, would, would cross national lines and then become ensconced in the pantheon of a nation and kind of slowly acquire a domestic pedigree. So um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, not always easy to tell the difference between a foreign god and a domestic god. And it's especially hard because biblical authors, including prophets, it seems, tend to stigmatize gods they don't like by attributing foreign heritage to them um, in much the way that a modern um, nationalist uh, might, uh, you know, there's a very, in these prophets, I argue, there's a very uh, kind of a, a populist nationalist strand. There's a resentment of kind of cosmopolitan elites that you can see in at least some of the prophetic texts, in some ways analogous to some, to some, uh, some political dynamics uh, that, that go on today and probably have just about always gone on. But um, in any event, you have this, this issue of the domestic pantheon. Um, so, for example, the goddess Asherah, who increasingly scholars believe was the wife or consort of Yahweh. This is one, one of many things that's in my book that I did not learn in Sunday school. Okay. Um, they didn't mention that. Uh, they, and they didn't mention most of the bad moods of God either. Um, but uh, there's now both, there's both evidence in the Bible itself and, and archaeological evidence now that, that Yahweh and Ash, Asherah were a couple. And in fact, that she was in the Jerusalem temple with Yahweh. She, uh, you know, the, the, the image of her, but in those days, the image of the God was, was almost equated with the God uh, by some people. So she's an example of somebody you'd need to get rid of um, if you're going to be monotheistic in the end. And there are others. Uh, and the question is, why would uh, 
why would you why would you want to clean out the domestic pantheon? And I argue that from a king's point of view, there's an actually strong incentive to get to to, to wipe out all gods other than Yahweh. Um, and the reason is that these would have been rival sources of power from the king's point of view. So he would have he would have had a different kind of zero sum uh, perception of them from from you know a zero sumness within Israel and specifically. Uh, it would have been, his rivals would have been the prophets of these gods, okay, the, like of Asherah. The Bible says at one point there's 400 prophets of Asherah in, um, in, in Israel. These would have been his rivals for the following reason. In ancient times, political power flowed fundamentally from claims to access to the divine, okay? Policy discourse consisted of, 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 saying, no, I think God wants this to happen, I think God wants that to happen. If, if, you, if you remember, um, after the Iraq War, the evangelist Pat Robertson said that he had had a conversation with George Bush before the war, and Bush told him that God had told him that invading was a good idea, and Pat Robertson said, well, that's funny, God told me it wasn't a good idea. Um, well, this was policy discourse in ancient times, okay? This, this, we like to think of it as, as maybe an unfortunate aberration, um, but in ancient times, it was much more fundamental. I'm sure they also brought pragmatic considerations to bear in deciding whether to invade a country, but you see it in the Bible, definitely. Prophets, some prophets saying, I was up there with Yahweh, and I'm telling you, this is what he wants. And uh, to the extent that other gods had followings in Israel, then their prophets would have had influence. See, Yahweh was the national god all along, um, or at least as soon as he kind of comes into view. Um, and as such, his prophets would have been in the king's court. So the king would have had more influence over interpreting the will of Yahweh than other gods. So the prophets to other gods would have been, um, would have been a, a, a political threat. And there's a king uh, not long before the exile who I think you know, picks up on this logic uh, and, uh, and really goes to town with it, and, 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 and just cleans out the pantheon. Um, and his name is, uh, his name is King, King Josiah. Um, and uh, he, uh, the, the Bible describes in detail what, what, what he does. He, he, uh, he, he had priests take from Yahweh's temple and burn, quote, all the vessels made for Baal, the reviled Canaanite god, for Asherah, this, this, uh, this mate of Yahweh's, and for all the host of heaven, which would have been celestial deities. And it goes on and on. And one interesting thing about this is, you know, this is the Jerusalem temple. So all of these gods and others are being worshipped in the Jerusalem temple at this point. It's just more evidence that polytheism was, was uh, the norm and not, the, not the, the aberration that the Bible depicts it as when the Bible tells the, the, the story. Um, and he, he has a bunch of priests killed and some other ones put in jail, and he destroys all these altars, uh, and there's a part of uh, what's called the Deuteronomic Code by scholars, and it's thought to be his ideology in, in writing. The book of Deuteronomy is, is, is thought to be largely a, a Josianic kind of production, and it says, uh, Yahweh says, any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Okay, so, um, and he also bans mediums and sorcerers, all sources of authority other than Yahweh, are wiped out by King Josiah. So uh, again, it, it's it's a you know it's a zero sum dynamic he sees uh, between himself and 
and the adherence of these gods, and, and he acts on it. Um, now, we don't know for sure that he was monotheistic. He was clearly monolatrous. He, he wanted only, only Yahweh worshipped. But again, the first clearly monotheistic utterances come from uh, so-called second I Isaiah, apparently during uh, the exile. Now, the spirit of those utterances, if you read second Isaiah, um, the verse that's most commonly quoted from second Isaiah is, is the famous, Israel shall be a light unto the nations in, um, in anticipating the, the coming apocalypse. I mean, Israel, you know, I mean, in case anybody doesn't know the story, okay, what's happened is Babylonians conquered Israel in humiliating fashion, d destroyed the temple, um, exiled Israelite elites to Babylon, and it's the elites who are kind of mulling the thing over theologically and trying to make sense of it, and Isaiah would be one of those. Um, and uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, well, the, the, again, the, the, the verse you hear most is this light unto the nations thing, which, which is uh, looking forward to the apocalypse. And it's common for people who uh, are in a very bad way in religious history, not just the Abrahamic tradition, who are oppressed or whatever, to look forward to a day when divine justice will be done. And Israel's version of this is especially vivid during the exile. Uh, and, and, and the nice part of that vision is this light under the nations thing. And there's actually controversy over what exactly it means, but I will say it, yeah, it sounds nice. Um, but if you read Second Isaiah, it really is an island in a sea of retributive and belligerent um, utterances. So here's, here are the, the, the spirit of the, of the emerging monotheism seems to be um, very much about retribution. I don't have time to go through my whole argument about why it emerges, but the basic idea is kind of um, we're going to, you know, these, all of these nations that have been oppressing us, um, we're going to show them we're, we're not only going to, you know, our God's not only going to conquer them, but we're going to explain to them. He's not only going to, going to um, overcome their gods. He, we're going to explain their gods don't even exist. Okay, uh, that's, a, that's a kind of, you know, almost a cartoonish version of, I think, what was going on. But here are some things Second Isaiah says. Uh, these rulers of these various nations that have been oppressing uh, Israel, quote, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. This is God talking to the Israelites. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Um, another one, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of, of uh of Jacob, um, and there are uh, and, and there are also uh, very clear uh, correlations with explicitly monotheistic declarations. In other words, same kind of thing, and then then they will know that I am the only God. I alone am God. Um, so I, I think you know, if you look at it honestly, you have to say that when monotheism emerges, if indeed this is the moment, it's really not a pretty picture of God that we see. However, uh, I'm happy to say that things then get better um, because what happens is Cyrus the Great uh, of Persia conquers the conquerors of Israel, the Babylonians, returns the exiles to Jerusalem and lets them practice their religion. And Israel is now, for the first time, you know, 
kind of ever, I guess, in a secure neighborhood. It, it is, its neighbors are now fellow members of the Persian Empire, and it doesn't have to worry about war with them, and there's an opportunity for non-zero-sum exchange. Um, and I think, uh, if you look at, again, the kind of mainstream dating of texts, you see a very different kind of monotheism emerge. I, I say it's going from a kind of exclusive to what I'd call a more inclusive monotheism. Um, the, uh, so nations like Moab, which, you know, gets very few flattering characterizations before the exile. Um, I can read some, but, but the point is that after, in what is apparently a post-exilic text, Ruth, the whole book is devoted to bringing the Moabites into the family, the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite, and we learn in the book of Ruth that actually King David himself was descended from a Moabite. Um, and Ruth is this wonderful woman. She's welcomed into the family. Um, I think the book of Jonah, probably post-exilic, does a similar thing with the Assyrians, much reviled people before the exile. But uh, what, what Jonah does is God takes Jonah to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, and Jonah wants God to punish uh, Assyria, uh, the, the Ninevans, for all their past sins. Um, and God, this is near the very end of the book, says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Which was an idiom for saying, they're just morally confused. Give them a break. Well, before the exile, moral confusion was not something you gave people a break for, if you, know, if you were one of Israel's tormentors. So this is a, uh, a pretty enlightened attitude we're seeing. There there are, other, there are a number of examples I use to argue uh, that, uh, that you're seeing a different kind of monotheism after the exile, an inclusive kind of monotheism, once Israel is in a much more kind of non-zero-sum uh, environment. Okay, so um, let me just, uh, let me, let me just, just uh, say a couple of things about the contemporary world and the connection of this to the contemporary world. Um, and then I'll close. Uh, I, think, I think, first of all, it's not far-fetched. I, I wrote a little piece about this uh, for the Huffington Post a few days ago. I think it's not far-fetched to compare the mindset of the Israelites during the exile to the mindset of Palestinians now feeling, um, you know, dispossessed, disrespected, humiliated. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, not something you expect to bring out um, the best in religion. Um, it's good news that we see that, you know, given long enough, if the environment changes, there can be a change in the tenor of religion. That's what the story of ancient Israel tells us. And that's what I think the story of all the Abrahamic religions tells us. Uh, in, in the book, I argue that they all undergo these kinds of adaptations when the environment is perceived as non-zero-sum. And it's really uh, a little more specifically encouraging than that uh, for the following reason. Um, in this case, it was, it was empire, a multinational platform where nations can play non-zero-sum games together that brought out the best in Israelite religion. I argue that the same is true in early Islam and early Christianity so that all three religions have adapted in, in a kind of benign way to that kind of environment. And the interesting thing about that environment, a multinational empire, is it's the closest analog in the ancient world to a modern globalized world, okay? It was, you know, in, in, a, in the modern world, you know, you, you can, in principle, trade and do business with all these countries, um, and, uh, and, and the same was, was true within, in, on the platform of a multinational empire.
Um, so I think it's, 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 it's uh, you know, it's encouraging to me that we've seen that, that specific adaptation to an environment somewhat like this one um, in the past on the part of these religions. Uh, now, that's not to say, you know, it's going to be easy to bring out the best in religions today. A uh, couple of reasons uh, for that. Um, one is that uh, sometimes there are non-zero-sum dynamics that people don't perceive. I mean, for example, I think a lot of Americans think of the Muslim world broadly as kind of being in a zero-sum relationship with them. I mean, it, it depends on kind of what channels they see the news on, but on some channels, probably every third Muslim is, is, is an Iranian burning an American flag or something. And if that's your view and you generalize the Muslims generally, you're going to think they're the enemy. Uh, whereas I think, you know, if you reflect on it, uh, it's pretty clear that the relationship is non-zero-sum in the sense that uh, the, uh, you know, if, if, if Muslims broadly get happier and more contented with their lives and happier with the world, that's probably good for America. It's probably going to be less likely to foment terrorism, whereas if they get less happy and, and, uh, and you know, you, the opposite would happen, okay? So that's a non-zero-sum relationship that, that may not be appreciated by everyone. Then if you look at Israel and Palestine, I think it's easy for, you know, at least detached observers who don't have to, to live over there and, and put up with the violence to say, well, that's non-zero-sum, you know, the, uh, uh, because probably neither side is going to vanquish the other, and either they're going to learn to get, to, to get along, and that's going to be the win-win situation, or it's going to be ongoing lose-lose. Um, I, I think in that case, there are probably a lot of people over there who would concede that point, that it's non-zero-sum, but even there you run into relationships of trust. It's a, a famous hindrance among game theorists to the solution of a non-zero-sum game is trust, the lack of trust. Uh, either, either You have to either trust the party to deliver on their obligations or there has to be some kind of policing mechanism that, that inspires confidence that the other party will deliver. And so there's various ways that uh, non-zero-sum dynamics can like not automatically translate into the, the psychological frame of mind that I would like to see um, and that I think are, is most conducive to uh, a benign um, solution. Uh, the, um, okay, so let me, uh, as if this hasn't been a sermon enough, let me, let, me, let me close with a specific sermon. I was brought up a Southern Baptist, so it's, it's just hard. Uh, that was, <laughs> who said, <laughs> who actually groaned? Um, are, are you a fellow sufferer, or are you, are you biased against Southern Baptists? You, what's that? Uh, yeah, well, it has its virtues. Um, I, none, none occur to me at the moment, but no, I, I actually, I actually, uh, I, have a, I have a lot of fond memories of, uh, of church. Um, they're distant memories, but they're fond. Uh, so, okay, so the, the, the sermon is, um, uh, what, what I would, I, I say in the book that I actually think there's one thing the prophets of all the Abrahamic traditions said that was actually, in a sense, uh, right, you know, uh, that, that holds up today as a fundamental truth about the world. You could, you could characterize what prophets in all three Abrahamic traditions were saying is, salvation is possible so long as you align yourself with the moral axis of the universe. Now, A, they meant different things by salvation. 
uh, it was much more about individual salvation in Christianity and Islam. The term in the Hebrew Bible is more often used to talk about preserving the peace and order of the society, the cohesion and integrity of the, of the social system. Um, B, they didn't use the phrase moral axis of the universe, right? They, they used the phrase God. But to them, that was the moral axis of the universe. Um, and I, I think if you, if you take the Hebrew Bible interpretation of uh, the word salvation, that is, it's about saving the social system, um, and this abstract version of, you know, you state it as the moral axis of the universe in non-theistic language, I think there's, there's really some truth. Because if you look at what I'm saying needs to happen here, um, it is that people have to adapt to non-zero-sum dynamics that actually exist, okay, and that will involve being more tolerant toward people, um, and I think it will involve more than that ideally. I have a chapter on what I call the moral imagination. That's a term that different people have used differently. What I mean by moral imagination is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of people very different from yourself, different culture, different religion, or whatever, and appreciate what their perspective looks like, and, uh, and attribute real moral value to, to them, to, to, the, to, to that perspective, okay? And I think... Um, Salvation will most readily come, in this sense of the term, if people expand their moral imaginations more broadly, if people everywhere get better at seeing the perspective of people different from them. And in a way, you know, religions have done this repeatedly, again, all three religions, and uh, these phases that are kind of analogous to globalization are, are particularly uh, inspiring examples where they got better at seeing the perspective of and acknowledging the humanity of people of different nationalities, sometimes even different religions. Um, so I think salvation may depend on the further expansion of, of uh, the moral imagination, and I think that would actually be movement to more, toward moral truth. I think the, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, as hard as this is for all of us to accept, that none of us is actually special. You know, we're designed to focus on our own well-being and attribute more significance to our own lives than those of others, but that's just what natural selection engineered into us to, to, so that we'd get genes into the next generation. It's not the truth. The objective truth is that we're not special, right? So you actually are moving closer to the truth to the extent that you attain a more kind of objective perspective, I would argue. So... In that sense, um, I, I would say they're right. Salvation depends on more closely aligning ourselves with the moral axis of the universe, and that's the end of the sermon part. And uh, now I can take questions. Hi, I'm, I'm Sarah Pillsbury, and I thought it was um, interesting, your talk coming on the heels of, of Obama's speech in Cairo, uh, where he was calling on all of the religions and uh, talking about their, uh, their commonality. And so it makes me want to ask you, uh, those of us who have uh, taken, come to take a dim view of religion and the place it's uh, played in history, um, are, you, are you saying that probably best if we too uh, uh, be tolerant uh, uh, and uh, just kind of Okay, you may not believe this stuff, but like, just work with me, go with me on this, because uh, 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 if we can just stick, you know, go with this, stay on the, with this religious framework, it will all be a, a good thing. Um, 
Yeah, anyway. I, I, I never thought of it exactly like that that, 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 that the tolerance should be extended in that way, too. Yeah. But okay. I think, but yes, I, I think I would say that. And, you know, I'm kind of, I have issues with the, uh, the, the so-called new atheists. Um, and uh, one of the issues, well, where do I begin? The, 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 I'm not a new atheist. You're an old atheist. Well, you're fine. You're fine. Some of my best friends are old atheists. Um, the, uh, but there is, I, I mean, I, I think, first of all, there's, there's actual confusion being put forth by new atheists, which is many of them, at least, act as if religion is the prime mover, okay? And, of course, my view is that it's not. I mean, Richard Dawkins said, if it weren't for religion, there would be no conflict between Israel and Palestine. I actually think, if you follow the history back, it's fundamentally begins as a secular thing, okay? Opposition to the settlements was not initially religious. The establishment of the settlements was not initially religious. Opposition to Israel was not initially religious. The establishment of Israel was not initially religious. It's an argument over land. It's a classic zero-sum thing, and as it goes on, it acquires an increasingly religious uh, character and brings out the worst in the religions. But I think it's just... Uh, it's, it's not correct to depict religion as the prime mover, as, say, Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens does, and kind of Sam Harris. Um, and I think it's not conducive to constructive policy. Of course, that's because in some cases I disagree with them on the policy. I mean, I, I, I think it, 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 it fundamentally, this worldview, it's funny, the new atheists are often thought of as kind of on the left, at least some of them. I think the implications of this part of the new atheism for foreign policy are basically right-wing. Because it's don't address, don't look back at root causes, don't don't address any grievances. It's all it's just religion is the problem, and until that goes away, nothing good is going to happen. Now, second, as a strategic matter, I don't think telling uh, fundamentalists that they're just confused and their God doesn't exist is really going to have profitable results in the short run. <laughs> I mean, I first started thinking this with you know I'm like a confirmed Darwinian. I've written about evolutionary psychology, and when Richard Dawkins started. Uh, you know, attacking, uh, you know, creationists, I thought, I'm not sure this is, you know, going to work out well. It's, I don't think it's going to make the Kansas school board feel less threatened <laughs> if you say Darwinism equals atheism, you know. So just as a tactical matter, I don't think that always works, and I don't think it works uh, with the Muslim world as well. But that's not a, I don't think, you know, people should tailor their, their, their opinions to, to tactical convenience. So I, I, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily, I mean, depending on how pragmatic you are. But... Um, but I just think as a practical matter, you know, uh, and this is kind of what you were saying, the religion's not, you know, it's not going away anytime soon because the new atheists, if anything, are probably more deeply entrenching it in many sectors of American society and abroad. So it's not going away. I would think that uh, what you hope for is an amendment of religious doctrines and attitudes. Hi, I'm Neil Tadkin. Um, I, uh, I'm curious about the, whether you've addressed or given any thought to the notion of the, the zero-sum game that kind of perhaps came about as a result of the Age of Enlightenment between the scientific worldview and the, sort of the, the, the world of mystery or the religious worldview, and how that um, may have set up um, religion to become a more deeply entrenched in a fundamentalist mindset that was trying to you know, argue from a quote-unquote scientific perspective about, say, the literacy, the, the literalism of the Bible. Because um, it, 
it also sets up dynamics within uh, within faiths. Uh, I'm an Episcopal priest, and uh, you know, within our denomination, certainly we have those uh, two battling camps of those who consider themselves sort of orthodox and those who consider themselves uh, more mainline. And uh, uh, but each you know roots themselves in in sort of a a certain worldview, so the zero-sum game that causes splits even within within a faith. Right. Yeah, I think um, perceiving a threat to your values is a kind of zero-sum perception. In other words, either this modernist, cosmopolitan, secular view prevails, or my view prevails, right? That, that's the way a, a traditionalist or a fundamentalist would think. So I think that's absolutely an example of a zero-sum perception, and it, and it speaks to my, my response to the first question. Um, you know, as for this particular version of it, science, you know, scientific worldview um, versus a religious worldview, I actually, in the book, I mean, I'm actually not an atheist. Uh, I'm not. I don't buy any claims of special revelation, as will become evident if you see my account, my very materialist account of the unfolding of these doctrines in the three religions. And I wouldn't say I'm any kind of confirmed theist, but I do, and I've argued before, that, uh, and I, I say this knowing that it will be misunderstood, but um, that, you know, if you look at the direction of, well, let me preface this by saying, I'm a hardcore Darwinian. I, I explain everything in material terms, natural selection, and that alone is what created us. And then we went on through cultural evolution to create these technologies that shape the rest of history. It's a totally materialist paradigm. But I do think if you look at the directionality of the whole system, there is evidence that you can, uh, of what you could call a larger purpose unfolding. I mean, in philosophical terms, what I'm saying is that there, there can be a materialist teleology if there are any philosophers out there, which is something that not a lot of people accept. But, um, and I think that there's a moral direction to it. As I said, I think it's an interesting fact that repeatedly the preservation, you know, technology has relentlessly expanded the scope of social organization. I think it's an interesting fact that along with the, a prerequisite for keeping societies together as they expanded has been what I would call moral progress. People to acknowledge, whether it's people in one part of the Roman Empire acknowledging the humanity of people in another, whatever, there's been an expansion of the moral compass to the point where today uh, people, you know, I'm sure most people in here would say that people everywhere, regardless of race, creed, or color, are people and deserve basic human rights. Believe me, that was not always a common view in the world, okay? That's actual progress. I think it's been driven by the basic direction of the system because I think repeatedly the only alternative uh, to that view is to watch the social system collapse. So I think it's a very interesting feature of you know, physical reality on this planet, that um, there is this correlation between social stability and the expansion of the moral imagination. So that's, I get into that a little in the book, uh, and I'm sure fail, fail to make myself clear enough, uh, and, you know, and I always get accused of thinking that there are these spooky mystical forces, which there may or may not be, I don't know, but they're, but they're not necessary for this view. So, and, and uh, there's one more thing on this. There, there's an interesting uh, thinker, Philo of Alexandria, ancient thinker, who I, I, I get into uh, in an extended way because I think his 
theology, the theology of the Logos, you'll recognize the word Logos because in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, when it says in the beginning is the word, of course, the, the actual Greek word that's being translated as word is Logos. It was a word in Greek philosophy. And he has this whole theology of the Logos that I think is, uh, a, a, you know, a pretty good candidate for a, a theology that may be viable in the modern world. Uh, you know, you have to be a little selective about which parts of it you accept, maybe, but it's it's not a bad candidate, and it's very, uh, very incredibly prescient. I mean, he sees the natural unfolding as being uh, like a global democracy in the long run that that binds people in a web of interdependence, you know, and that's and he's saying that's a manifestation of the logos. Um, so I do anyway. I play around with this this question of reconciling science and religion because I'm personally interested in it. I'm sure because I was brought up a Baptist, you know. Um, but uh, it, it, it's interesting that we have these two things going on at once. You know, the tensions between the religions and then tension between traditional believers and the secular worldview that's part of the modern world. And the, and and these two challenges interact in some unfortunate ways. I would say. Um, and, 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 and handling them both is going to be probably hard. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner. And as a new atheist, um, <laughs> having seen or, uh, or in your studies of the historical evolution of a god, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are for the next evolution of God. In other words, what's to come? Well, it, it gets back to the fact that there are two issues you know, going on at once. All that's necessary, for my purposes, is that the religions become tolerant. They can hang on to as much of their theology as they want. And, uh, you know, I would further say, well, no, I've said enough about that. But uh, um, that, that's what I really care about. It, you, know, it, it, you know, I think religion often not only doesn't bring out bad in people, it's often a source of, of good, often has been. There's soup kitchens all over America being run by religious people. And um, so uh, that would be enough for me. But then, uh, but then there's the question of adaptation to modern scientific worldview. And I think what you're going to see is that you're talking about two different groups of people to a large extent. I mean, there's already this, you know, there's a separation between, between uh, you know, very well-educated elites in a religion and uh, the kind of the base, uh, maybe not so much within a, a given church, but certainly, I mean, I, I have uh, I, I've run into some Christians who, who, who kind of don't mind what I'm saying about Christianity in this book, even though I'm certainly not accepting the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm not even accepting the idea that he said all the good stuff, the brotherly love stuff. So these are very liberal Christians. But meanwhile, at the mass level, what's, you know, one of the fastest growing things is Pentecostalism, you know. I don't think many of them would be enthusiastic about these claims. Um, so I just think uh, it, it's not a monolithic issue. It's not, it's not that the conception of God is going to move in one direction. I just think different people are going to... I, I think, well, it's an interesting question. Maybe someday everyone will feel the need to really rigorously reconcile their conception of God with science. But I think right now a lot of believers don't feel a need, and, and it'll be a long time before they do, whereas meanwhile some people will really be trying to work that out. Thank you. My name is Achim Jung, and uh, I'm curious if, besides the materialistic foundation of your theory, have you thought about the psychological basis of faith, that people grow up in different families, 
in families that are um, very rigid and families that are more tolerant. And in my circle of friends, my environment, I see much more an influence of the family structure and the resulting beliefs hmm. than in the material basis. And what is the, what is the correlation, just out of curiosity? Author authoritarian families produce religious people? Authoritarian families produce um, people who are fundamentalists, who have a tendency to be um, rigid and even aggressive uh, towards others who have different beliefs. And families with a more liberal background, on, in general, produce people with the kind of worldview that you are propagating. Yeah, well, um, you know, most personality traits, including religiosity, are thought to have some degree of heritability. Um, that is to say, um, some of the variation, at least, can probably be explained by genetic differences, although the meaning of heritability is, 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 uh, is often kind of misunderstood. It's, it's actually a, a subtle concept. But, but uh, so first of all, there's that, right? That, that, that one thing you may be seeing there is that... Uh, um, I mean, I'd be interested in, in uh, what the correlation is between authoritarianism and religiosity. But it, but it could be that to some extent you're actually seeing heredity work out there. Um, or it could be, it could be upbringing. Um, my family is very non-authoritarian but devout, so I would be an outlier in your, in your, um, in your scheme. But uh, it's certainly possible. I, I don't consider that kind of inconsistent with anything I'm saying. There's all kinds of variation and and complexity that this basic model doesn't capture. Hi, I'm Terrence McNally. And, uh, Hi, Terry. Uh, I actually interviewed Robert for my radio show a few days ago, and I didn't ask this question. I was so within the confines sort of of the book and that thinking. But a few years ago, I, in a not rigorous moment of, of intellectualism, but sort of a, one of those musing moments, said, you know, this idea that there is one God versus many that's not a bad revelation. But I felt that the political, cultural uh, perspective with which that revelation was received became there is one God, it's my God, and yours is wrong, when the real revelation is we are all one, that there is oneness, right. and that I would almost, that question of the evolution of God might be that we eventually could move toward that. Right. I mean, I, uh, I talk a little about the idea of the Godhead, which is most associated with kind of modern Hinduism. And it was, an, it was a way of uh, reconciling, bringing together people who worship different gods. And the idea was that they are all manifestations of a single underlying Godhead. And, you know, interestingly, I mean, I argue that there may be vestiges of that in the Hebrew Bible. Because one of the strange things... Uh, about the terminology for God in the Hebrew Bible is this word Elohim in Hebrew, which is used to refer to God and is actually the plural of, the, of a generic noun for God. And sometimes it's used as a plural, as in the gods of Egypt, and sometimes it's used as a, like a proper noun for the God of Israel. And it is uh, especially favored by the so-called priestly source, who I think most people think is writing either uh, right after the exile or maybe toward the very end of the exile when, 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 when the, the, after, in the time of Cyrus the Great. Um, and uh, I talk about some, a, a scholar who, who has worked out this idea 
that 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 is the terminology used by the priestly source is a way of drawing the gods uh, in the area into uh, a single unified conception of the divine. Uh, and um, I, I think that's possible. Now, I will say that uh, this is, uh, remember, that the Persian Empire is the, is the expanse of the non-zero sumness in this case, and the priestly source says some very unkind things about the Egyptians. If you go through and look at the at narrative uh, of, of Exodus and see which parts are attributed to the priestly uh, source, he really adds some real reasons to dislike the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were enemies of the Persian Empire. And he also, by the way, begins a kind of rapprochement with the Arabs. The Arabs in the Bible are called Ishmaelites, after Ishmael, the, the character who, by Muhammad's account as well, this is the account that Muhammad picked up on in, 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 in creating Islam. And uh, there's two accounts of the whole story uh, whereby Ishmael uh, gets born uh, and in, in the priestly account, see, the Arabs would have been in between the, the, the rival Egyptians and the Persian Empire, probably somebody you'd like to stay on okay terms with. But in any event, uh, the priestly source has a much more flattering depiction of, Is, uh, of Ishmaelite heritage. It, 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 sometimes it's, it's not so clear that Ishmael is an illegitimate son as, as in the, the pre-exilic narrative. So, but that, that's, a, that's a tangent. I mean, that, that is, I mean, somebody asked earlier, what kind of, you know, what would you like to, what might happen theologically? Ideally, you would see, you would, you know, what could happen within the framework of religious interpretation without abandoning religion? The, the best thing would be this idea of the Godhead. Now, within the Abrahamic faith, it's already there. I mean, uh, Muslims already say, Muhammad said, our God is the God of Christians and Jews. Um, but it would be nice for them to all kind of really believe that and mean it and live it, and then it would be nice for it to go beyond the Abrahamic world, where, where uh, you know, and, and one manifestation of that in Christianity would be, would be the idea that actually you don't have to believe in Jesus per se to be saved, and you've seen some hints of that in the Second Vatican. You know, the modern world has brought some progress in that realm, but I'm all in favor of the Godhead, yes, a, a unified conception of divinity, yes. Thank you. Hi, Robert Craig here. Um, certainly tolerance is highly desirable in uh, all forms. Uh, could you comment about tolerance or lack of tolerance in monotheism or monotheistic societies versus polytheistic or more secular societies? I mean, there are some arguments that the rise of religious fundamentalism and holy war starts with monotheism. I certainly don't think holy war starts with monotheism. Um, in, the, in the ancient Near East, uh, it was completely routine for a nation going to war to be going to war at the behest of its god, its national god, even though it was a polytheistic nation with many gods. But basically, you would say our national god is going to go defeat this other national god. And I would call that a form of holy war. Now, it, it may be, it could be true that, uh, poly I mean, certainly polytheistic societies uh, are ostensibly more tolerant. I mean, they're, they're, their idea is, you, you know, you can believe in various gods and it's okay. Um, whether uh, whether they, they less often invoke their religion as a justification for going to war, I don't know. I, I mean, I, ha I just haven't done that 
that kind of study. I, I, I stop my analysis at the point of saying that the idea that monotheism is intrinsically belligerent is wrong, okay? There is, we have seen the evolution of more inclusive forms of monotheism, as I just described. So I think that idea is wrong. It may be, uh, it, it may be that, that monotheism is more prone to religious violence. Could be, I just don't know. There are certainly examples, you know, Hindu nationalism, uh, certainly examples of, of, of religion being invoked in, again, zero-sum games, whereas one piece of turf and, and should it be a mo is it a mosque or a Hindu temple? Only one side can win. And polytheists get very uh, irate about that. So um, that's that, I guess. Thanks.